God's chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith. James chapter 2, 1 through 5 tell us that's whom he's chosen to save out of this world so he can bring to nothing those that think they're something. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John in the 12th chapter. Let's start there, make a short review of what we've covered in this last week of our Lord's life. What we want to do is make a short review of what we've covered in this last week, then finish out John chapter 16, and by the Lord's gracious leading blessing, we'll get into John 17 next Sunday. John chapter 12, verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover. The Lord put some timing verses in these last chapters of the Gospel of John for us to know that we have the last week of his life in chapters 12 through 20. You know, maybe 21 stretches out a couple more weeks after that, then he's in heaven. But you look at all these chapters, and we, we like to think proportionately. Since I'm only halfway through the Gospel of John, then I'm only halfway through his ministry. Wrong. You're all the way through his ministry, except for the last week. And so we've learned that, and I'm reminding you of that, for us to appreciate these chapters. That's chapter 12 and verse 1. And there's an important section in this chapter 12 that we'll come back to in a moment. But look at chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Because the end was right here. When it says, now before the feast of the Passover, remember I explained that to you, there's more than just a Passover supper. There were two days of feasting, both Sabbath days. And so this brings us right to the last supper, the night before the great celebration of, the, of Passover. And that's chapter 13. Then looking, considering timing verses right now, they're in the upper room. They're in a place that where the Lord had already arranged for the Passover to be prepared for them in the city of Jerusalem. And then they, they uh, are sitting there and he teaches them, chapter 13, he washes their feet, he teaches them some lessons, he tells them about Judas, Judas leaves the assembly, he gives them chapter 14 about their hearts not being troubled at the news he just laid on them about division in their ranks, and he come, we come to the last verse of chapter 14 where we have another timing verse or another event verse in this case. And we want the last sentence of John 14, 31, Arise, let us go hence. So now Jesus leaves the upper room and is heading to Bethany where the Garden of Gethsemane was, about two miles from Jerusalem. And so it tells us that. Then if we flip over to chapter 18 and verse 1, which is after our Lord's lengthy prayer for his apostles and for us, we come to the first verse of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is his prayer of chapter 17, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. So we've got the last week of his life and his weightiest messages, his weightiest lessons, because they're not for a mixed multitude of Jews that he had blinded. Because remember, many times we've read about the blinding of the Jews. Many times there were Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, and others among the multitude. So his speech was guarded. He used parables. He obscured his message, but not with them. He does use some proverbs, but he's going to explain his proverb before we finish today. And they're going to know that he had explained his proverb. And they're going to thank him for doing it. And they're going to tell him how much they believe on him. Because he's made it clear to them that he knows all things before they even ask. So there's some timing to remind us how special these chapters are. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All the last night... Five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. He's on the road to Bethany. He is going to stop and have a prayer. And that's in the 17th chapter. 
Now, flipping back to John chapter 12, let me pull out of that a couple things. You know, our brother James has already read to us from the first 10 verses about the stinginess, cruelty, covetousness, greediness of Judas because Mary wanted to spend and waste money on the Lord Jesus Christ. We love wasting money on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary was written down in the pages of Scripture to be remembered forever because she wasted money on the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he need it? You need to to ask and answer that question. Did he need it? No, he didn't need it. Did she do it anyway? Did he say that she would be remembered? Indeed. And and when when we covered those verses, many of you were convicted that you wanted to be more sacrificial in your adoration and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope we don't forget that. We may, I, with you, meaning we, may never pass this way again. But it was right there in the first part of chapter 12. And then Jesus had his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, beginning at verse 12. There were Greeks that came and said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. We don't really care about you apostles. That's implied. What I want is the time we spent on verses 31 through 33 because it's a transcendent event that he prophesied. John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Because Jesus died a crucifixion death, he had to be lifted up. Crucifixion was lifting up a man's body and putting it on a tree, putting it on a cross. The Jewish method of killing was stoning. You were on the ground. And so he's talking about his Roman death of crucifixion. But these are transcendent events. The world was judged. Satan was judged. And he was lifted up. And he drew all men, including Gentiles. Because from this prophecy, the world system was overthrown. And the gospel went into all the world. And emptied out temples and emptied out idol stores in various places. The craft of... The craft... The job set, the skill, the profession of idol makers was at risk. They were having riots over it because the united idol makers were were losing their jobs because of the Lord Jesus Christ and this transcendent event right here. We come over to, but when when we read that there, remember, we've covered something in John 16. So let's go to John 16 and look at four verses there that are about the same event, just worded a little differently, because at this point, he's now commissioning his apostles to go preach in all the world and to change things by reproving the world and telling them they're wrong. John 16, verse 8, And when he has come, that's the Holy Ghost, on the day of Pentecost, to the apostles, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin... Because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. And the Holy Spirit did that through the apostles. The apostles turned the world upside down. And in this gospel of John, we're told that, and we're not told that so much in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here we're told that in chapter 12, And we're told that in chapter 16. So we want to remember that. We're not going to pass this way again, possibly. And so let's remember these transcendent events. Let's come back to chapter 14. Back to chapter 14. Well, in chapter 13, we had the Lord washing the apostles' feet. And he said in verse 14 of chapter 13, If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And while we believe that it was a cultural custom to do that, we do understand that this was true humility and service. And we just heard from Psalm 41 about more service toward the poor. There should be no one that we're not willing to condescend to and stoop to to help them in something as unnecessary. Here we go again. Unnecessary as washing feet. Do you have to have your feet washed? to enjoy a meal. 
No. It was just a nice act of service so you could enjoy the meal a little bit better. You didn't have that dusty dirt on your feet that you got while you were coming from the public bath. And so the Lord did that and he says, if I have done it, then you ought to be able to do it for each other. And he says, he follows that up in verse 35 by saying, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. It's brotherly love, one brother to another, one sister to another. A one-on-one service, humility, love, that's going to show that you're truly my disciples. That is the measure of my religion. It is not regeneration before faith. That isn't the measure of my religion. It's not election and predestination. That is not the measure of my religion. It's not historicism versus futurism or preterism. That's not the measure of my religion. The measure of my religion is brotherly love. And that includes among you apostles as well. That was chapter 13. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Half of you probably know these verses by heart. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And we figured out how you squeeze mansions into a house. They're apartments. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Wonderful words of promise. Based on those promises, don't let your heart be troubled. Let your heart be happy. He's telling his apostles in chapter 14. Verses 16 through 18 tell about another comforter coming. And the Lord Jesus Christ puts it this way in verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I am not going to leave you alone, men. I'm going to the Father, but I will return in the person of the Holy Ghost. And I will comfort you. And I will lead you into all truth. And I will bring all things to your memory whatsoever I've taught you. It's precious, these chapters, of what the Lord said to his apostles. And our brother read verses 21 through 23, which I consider three of the most important personal, practical, intimate verses that Jesus Christ ever spoke of the, the relationship that a person can have with God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word of God made flesh, and the Holy Ghost by keeping his commandments and loving him. And you love him by keeping his commandments. And the Father and the Son, by the Spirit, will come and dwell with you, abide with you, and love you in a practical, personal way of fellowship that they don't otherwise. And so Christians advance and grow in their love of Christ, and they grow and experience a greater degree of love from Christ and from God the Father, and from the Holy Ghost, and a greater manifestation of them to that person. This is what John 14 taught us in verses 21 through 23. Then we come over to verse 15. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. That's our relationship. I provide all that you need. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Then we come to verses 9 through 11, which is a corollary to that expanded, improved relationship with God from chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. In chapter 15, it's worded this way, verse 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. That wouldn't be there unless you can fall out of some of their love. The fellowship is hindered, and it absolutely is. The rest of the Bible teaches the same thing. You can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. When you've grieved a person, when you've grieved a person and they're hurt, do you feel their love as much as when you hadn't hurt them? How deep and complicated is that? Do you understand that? Well, it's true of God our Father. He puts things in terms for us. And so he says, continue ye in my love. Verse 10, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. My joy might be in you. The closer you are to me, 
The Lord Jesus Christ is saying, the more my Father and I will love you, and the more you will have the joy that I have, the closer you are to me. It's your choice. It's my choice. And we foolishly, arrogantly, proudly cost ourselves. I can show you in the words of Elihu that you don't cost him, but you do cost yourself. And so that brings us to John chapter 16. Look at John 16. Verses 1 through 6 are Jesus' warning of apostolic persecution, meaning the apostles were going to be persecuted. Verses 7 through 11, they're going to reprove the world by the person of the Holy Spirit being the comforter with them. This is John 16. Verses 12 through 15, which we covered last Lord's Day, Jesus would teach those apostles by the Spirit. Remember verse 12? I have yet many things to say unto you. Men, I have so much more to say unto you, but time's up. And goes on to explain, I'll teach you everything through the Holy Spirit. He will lead you into all truth. All the truth that God's given me, I've given him, and he's going to give it to you. That's that third lesson in verses 12 through 15. Verses 16 through 22 are all about a little while and a little while and a little while and a little while and a little while, a little while, and a little while. It's repeated in four verses in a row. It's verses 16, 17, 18, and 19 about the little while because that was a proverb to the poor apostles and they did not know what he was talking about. So he explained obscurely in verses 20 through 22. He tells them in verse 20, you're going to be sad, then you're going to be happy. Verse 21, it's like a woman when she gives birth. She's sad when the labor pangs or pains, contractions take over, but then she's happy when she brings a child into the world. Verse 22, you're going to be sorrowful, but then you're going to rejoice, and no one's going to be able to take away your joy because it's going to be based on something that cannot be undone and that will never be undone, and that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was lesson number four in verses 16 through 22. And the the next lesson is verse 23 through 31. And we ended in the middle because we ended at verse 27, last Lord's Day. And this lesson is great power in prayer by Jesus as mediator. He was going to heaven and they would no longer be able to ask him. And they weren't supposed to ask him anymore. They were supposed to ask the Father in his name. And by praying in the name of Jesus, oh yes, it was taught in chapter 14, it was taught in chapter 15, and it's taught again right here. Prayer changed 2,000 years ago. For 4,000 years, no one had prayed the name of the Son of God. But after his ascension up into heaven, and the day of Pentecost, they prayed in the name of Jesus. Nobody had ever been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or in the authority and name of the Lord Jesus Christ, up until Pentecost. You were baptized with the baptism of repentance of John the Baptist. That's all Jesus got. It was plenty good for the time. Because whatever ordinance of God is given for a period of time, it's all you want to do for that period of time. And that's all they did do, was the baptism of repentance of John the Baptist. And so here we are now. We're at John chapter 16, and we're in the middle of lesson number 5 which is verses 23 through 31. Let's just look at the verses, because I don't... Verse 23, In that day ye shall ask me nothing. What does that mean? We're going to stop praying? After his ascension to heaven? After Pentecost? Did men stop praying? No, they no longer asked Jesus anything. They asked the Father. And there's a prayer meeting in Acts 4, where the place was shaken, because they prayed in the name of... Thy holy child Jesus, twice in the middle of the prayer. You know, some of you have come to me and said, why do we tack it on at the end? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul's epistles end that way. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Every single one of them. That's his salutary statement. We want to make sure that everything that we've said is in the name of Jesus Christ the Father. So we put it at the end. But I'm bringing this point up to say that that's good enough evidence for me that putting it at the end is not wrong and certainly has a couple valuable points. 
But why not put it at the beginning and the middle as well? What is wrong with invoking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I refer you now to the second time today to Acts 4, when they brought up the name of thy holy child Jesus twice in the body of the prayer. Because when you bring up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you get the Father's attention. And that's the whole purpose of it. He's our mediator. He's our big brother. He's our Lord and Savior. But he is God the Father's only begotten, well-beloved Son. And when you bring up his name, and you believe that he came and died on the cross for you, that tells the Father a lot that the Father wants to exert himself Our Father doesn't have to exert himself very much to help any of us because our biggest needs are his smallest effort. But we get his attention we pray in the name of his Son. And so these verses are precious. Verse 23, Verily, verily, I say unto you, in verse 23, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Chapter 14 and chapter 15 was, I will do it for you. Here it's the Father. Verse 24, to this point, you've asked nothing in my name. Listen, learn the new method of prayer, men. Ask, and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Here's another reason for joy. Is there a God in heaven that we can pray to that is able to do anything we need? Amen. That should cause joy. Right. Has he ever answered your prayer requests when you were in a rather hopeless or a totally hopeless situation. Has he helped you? He's helped every one of us, and it should cause joy. Was there joy back in verse 22? There was. I'll help you. There was joy back in verse 22. What's that based on? The resurrection of Jesus. There's joy right here in verse 24, and it's based on prayer in Jesus' name. And there's going to be joy before we can get out of this chapter on Jesus' victory over this whole world. We have every reason to be joyful. It's what I started out with this morning. I didn't start out with that this morning because I threw die trying to find what, ch- what book of the Bible and what chapter and verse I should use. We should be rejoicing. Amen. What more should he have done for you? Do you want? I don't even like asking that question worded that way. Do you want to answer it? What more should he have done for you? The things he did for you are incomprehensible. No one else has ever done anything for you in comparison to what he did for you. And he did those things for you when you didn't want him to do those things for you. There's reason for joy. Verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs. Men, I'm sorry about a little while and a little while and a little while and a little while. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. Jesus may have done some of this personally, individually, after his resurrection. We don't have much of his teaching after his resurrection. When we get to the book of Acts, Luke sticks in verse 3. He says, And Jesus spake to them of things concerning the kingdom of God. That's all it says. But it wasn't very plain. You know why? Because three verses later, the apostles ask, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's, that's Acts 1.3 and Acts 1.6. But did Jesus plainly teach them through the Spirit? You say, but it says that he's going to teach them. Yes, and it says the Spirit's going to reprove the world. But who actually went out and reproved the world? The apostles, full of the Holy Ghost. And so Jesus did it through the Holy Spirit. Is Jesus in heaven or with us right now? That is the correct answer, yes. He's in both places. He's in heaven bodily, and he's with us by his Spirit. How can he be with us by his Spirit? And there are other churches in the world, and he is with them. Because he's divisible. And because that's why he's called, the Holy Spirit is called the seven spirits of God. Because in the context of Revelation chapters 1 through 3, how many churches were there? Seven. Seven. What else is seven known for? It's perfect and complete. Like creation. We didn't need an eighth day. Joy. 
in a new method of prayer. Verse 25, I'm not going to speak to you in Proverbs. I'll do better. Verse 26, at that day, this time coming, ye shall ask in my name. You're going to pray the Father in my name for the first time. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. He does pray the Father for us, but he's not going to bring that up right here because he wants to focus their attention on the fact that they can pray to God in his name and the Father will be moved by it. And so verse 27, For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. Is that simple enough for the Father to love us and have an interest in answering our prayers? Because we have two things true about us. Because ye loved me. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And because you believed he came out from God. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God that came down from heaven by a virgin birth? And that holy thing that was born of Mary was the Son of God? Do you believe that and do you love Him? The Father is interested in your prayers. You don't need the Lord Jesus Christ to pray to the Father for you. It's just an added benefit. It's a prayer enhancer. And so we come to verse 28. They could pray the Father directly. Jesus said to them in verse 28, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Now, to us, to us, reading that verse here in chapter 16 is, duh, excuse, I mean it reverently, as reverently as I should be toward apostles. Jesus is having to lower himself to them because they didn't understand a little while and you're not going to see me a little while and you will see me. It just messed them up. Here's his answer. Men, I came forth from the Father. I came down from heaven. The Father sent me and am come into the world where I've walked and talked, lived and eaten with you for three and a half years. Again, I've got another change to make. I leave the world and go to the Father. We think that it is so simple, and they should have understood that already. But they didn't really. They were expecting him to exalt Israel, throw off the Roman yoke, and establish himself like a son of David that they had in their minds. The kind of Messiah they wanted. A carnal, natural, earthly, worldly ruler. Which we don't want to think about. We don't really care what happens to the countries of this world. Let them all destroy each other. We're, we're citizens of a heavenly country. We're members of a holy nation. We're part of a different kingdom. We have a real king. We don't play games with our king like the rest of the world does. They say they have a king. They waste money on a throne. They waste money on a crown. They waste money on bodyguards. They let them have palaces, but they're really not kings. Because they don't do anything except add to the public payroll, the, the fiscal payroll of the government. But we have a real king. Amen. So they were, they were still messed up at this point, and they will be till the day of Pentecost. And we look at these words and we say, well, they're so simple and they're so obvious, they should have known them, and that's true. They should have known them, but they didn't. My origin, Jesus said, is not of this world. I had parents in Nazareth, as you know, but I came from God, as you also know. The Father sent me into the world to fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah. This is all embodied in this one verse. You have been with me for three and a half years, and you know of my history before that, living in Galilee. I was in this world. I've been a part of this world. I've moved to and fro among men, preaching, performing miracles, and living my life. Now it's time for me to reverse that order of events and return to my Father in heaven. I will not be here any longer among and with you, for I have finished my work on the earth. These are the th this is what's implied in verse 28. When I arrive in heaven, he will receive me as his only begotten son, and I will intercede for you. All involved in those words. Now they understood it. Verse 29. His disciples said unto him, Lo! Now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. But they, even though they said this, they are not fully convinced and fully understanding 
because of the verses I've already said to you that occur six weeks from now, uh, there in the last week, there at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. But they did understand enough. They saw that he was going to have to leave them and go to the Father. That you're right, you came from the Father. You did not have an ordinary birth like we did. You did not have an ordinary life like we do. And you're going back to the Father. We grasp it with these plain words that are not using some of your obscure terminology. Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Verse 30. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things. And needest not that any man should ask thee, by this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Now Jesus had said in verse 27, My Father will love you if you love me, and if you believe I came forth from God. And now they admit that they really believe it. Of course, if you would have asked them earlier, and we have some events where they answered correctly, and usually Peter, Matthew chapter 16 We know that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe that thou art the Christ, John chapter 6. Peter saw and understood, and here they're saying it again, but it's based on a miracle he just did for them. It's based on a miracle. Now are we sure? He just added something to his resume in their minds. Now are we sure in verse 30? that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus arranged a divine miracle to confirm the apostles' faith in his knowledge of them. He used a proverb to confuse them. He then asked and answered it himself. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar had his vision in Daniel chapter 2, He called in all the soothsayers and Chaldeans. Daniel wasn't part of the group. And he told them, I had a dream last night and I want to know the interpretation. But so that I can be assured of your interpretation, I want you to tell me what the dream was. And they said, okay, okay, live forever. (laughs) But that's ridiculous. No king has ever asked something like that in the history of the world. And he was right. Now, the apostles just got that lesson back. They didn't have to ask their question. Jesus told them their question and gave the answer for it by giving the answer. Is there there a game? See, I've never watched television game shows, but I think think that there's a game where there's an answer and you've got to figure out the question. Jeopardy? Is that the word for it? Jeopardy, okay. I thought there was such a thing. And so Jesus answers their question without them asking it. And they they catch that. They catch it very plainly, and that's what verse 30 is. Verse 30 is not complicated. But do you know this? The real point is, do you know this? That he's able to do this. Do you know why Jesus Christ preached against the rosary? Do you even know where to go in the Bible to find that? Use not vain repetitions like the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard by their much speaking. But then he gives the reason. Your heavenly Father knoweth what you have need of before you ask. That's in the next verse. It's Matthew chapter 6. We want to we gather something for ourselves from these final lessons of Jesus to his apostles. Verse 7. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. When ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. You know, Catholics with 55 beads on their rosary, they go through it three times for 165 prayers. And there's 15 Our Fathers and there's 150 Hail Marys. And they think that for their much speaking, God's going to hear them. And Jesus condemns the rosary in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. But then he explains, verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. And if we go back in John, I'm back in John 16 now, and you look at verses 16 through 19, 16 is Jesus stating it, 17 is the apostles wondering about it, 
18 is the apostles saying it to each other. What does he mean? A little while. Then 19 is Jesus knowing that they want to ask him, but they hadn't asked him yet. And so before they ask, he knows what they have need of. Jesus arranged a divine miracle to confirm the apostles' faith and his knowledge of them. He used a proverb to confuse them. He then asked and answered it himself. What a great lesson for Jesus to encourage them. When you are in your darkest confusion, he is not confused at all, nor is he ignorant of your confusion. He's not confused, and he knows you're confused when you're confused. He never gets confused. Your little life is a laughing matter to him, but he doesn't laugh at it. He could. In our perspective, he should. We get so worked up about things that are nothing to him, but he already knows. And so trust that like this. This is, he's going to pray in John chapter 17. This is one of his final lessons. You were confused. You were afraid to ask me. You know I'm going away. You won't be able to ask me anymore. I'm telling you, don't worry about it. You're not going to ask me anything anymore. You're going to ask the Father in my name. He's going to do it all for you. And I'm going to be praying the Father for you as well. Though right now I don't need to mention that because the Father himself loves you by himself. And listen, he and I know everything that's going on with you anyway. And we're not confused or messed up by it at all. Oh, there's a, that's such comfort for them who are about to be left what appears to be on their own. But they're not really on their own, just like Jesus wasn't on his own when they deserted him. They had asked questions during this discussion. If we go back through chapters 16, 15, and 14, we find several places where they asked him questions. But they're not going to be doing that anymore because the Father is the one that they would be praying to. And so they make a great statement of faith in verse 30. They understood that he was plainly telling them now and that he recognized that they did not understand what he had said. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? That, that's pitiful. Do you now believe? What does it take for you to believe? We have learned from Romans chapter 5 and James chapter 1 that tribulation worketh Patience, cheerfully enduring negative events. Right. And patience, cheerfully enduring negative events, worketh experience. What are our three levels of experience? We have experience in the Word of God, don't we? That God took care of His people in both Testaments. Then you look around and you have the experience of other men, women in our assembly and God taking care of them. Then you have your own experience of times in the past when you needed help and God helped you. So we have three great pillars of experience. And here, Jesus gave them one for their recollection later. Now we know that you came out from God because you just took care of our confusion and explained very simply to us without a proverb that you came down from heaven and now it's time for you to go back to heaven. And though they didn't have perfect understanding yet, they had enough to make their profession in verse 30. And Jesus said, do you now believe? Do you now believe? God, by Jesus, his spirit, and the apostles have done more for you than even the apostles had from him. You have the complete New Testament. What more, and I, I, that question's bothering me leading up to today, what more should he have done for you? In Isaiah chapter 5, God, Jehovah, asked Israel, what more could have been done for my vineyard that I didn't do for it? And when I came looking for grapes, I got wild grapes. How sweet are your grapes to Jesus Christ. What more should he have done for you? He's done everything for us. Stop thinking. Some of you have serious problems by thinking. 
Stop thinking. Your thoughts sicken God, sicken others, and sicken you. Because they're worthless. Why not read, believe, and rejoice? That sounds simple. I have as many crazy hard drives twirling right now as probably anyone here. And I don't mean in a computer. This is, you don't call this a computer. But they're twirling. And they want to throw out their garbage. But it's garbage. Right. Stop thinking. Apostles, stop worrying. Just believe. Your thoughts sicken God. The Lord's done so much for us, we should only rejoice. Amen. Pastor's job is to take an M1 Abrams 72-ton battle tank and crush your precious little thoughts. Amen. What should you do? Cheer up. Shout his praise and dance. Yeah. Then go love a brother. That's about the whole New Testament. Cheer up, shout his praise, dance, and go love a brother. Did you hear love a brother from Psalm 41? Did you hear rejoice in the Lord? And again, I say rejoice from Philippians 4.4. 4. That's what we're supposed to do because he's done it all for us. He's done all the real, he's done the heavy lifting. All we've got is to run around and taste it and see that the Lord is good. Do you now believe I hope we believe. Amen. Verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. And that ends his lessons. John 17 is a prayer to the Father that invokes them and us at verse 20. Oh yeah. We get into that prayer at verse 20 of John chapter 17, but that's a prayer. His lessons end with, I have overcome the world. What else do you need to hear? I have overcome the world. They throw ticker tape parades for men with little pop guns shooting at each other in various parts of the world. They throw ticker tape parades. Millions will line the streets in New York City and throw litter out of windows for little games that men play with the Monopoly board called the world and its nations and the, and the divisions and boundaries of those nations. This is a real victory. Amen. There is no real victory on earth. After one general dies, or one president dies, or one cabinet dies, who knows? Do you know how fast World War II followed World War I? Do you know what kind of celebrating they did after World War I? It's ridiculous. In 15 years, they were ready for war again in Europe. The point being, Jesus has won an incredible victory. There are no enemies left. Just the formal shoving them under his feet, and the formal and official granting of him the reign over the whole universe. Right. He reigns over it now. Right. But it's going to be formally and officially declared, and we're going to do it with him and cast his arch enemies, his greatest enemies, the devil and his angels, into hell. Right. And, and in these words, I have overcome the world. You're going to have tribulation, men. They're going to persecute you. They're going to hate you. Their system of presenting goodies to your sight Goodies for your flesh, goodies for your pride, all that's going to be there. Everything you can think of about the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They're going to persecute you, they're going to torment you, they're going to put you to death. All these negative things, but I have overcome the world. You've been with me for three and a half years. They've tried to kill me in numerous ways, in numerous places. They've tried to kill me in Nazareth when they wanted to lead me to the brow of a hill and cast me off. They've tried to kill me in Jerusalem, and here I am. I have power to lay my life down, and I have power to take my life up again. This little hour is Satan's hour. It's the hour of darkness, but I'm going to break through and bust this darkness. 
I will reign again. I will see you again. Your joy will be full and no one will take your joy away. I will ascend up into heaven. I will sit at the right hand of the Father. I will be praying for you. I will come to you. I will not leave you comfortless and I will take you to me. He's he's wrapping this up and it's victory. Amen. You know, to stand in New York and do this, Really? Really? This is victory. Victory. What did they do to Europe after World War II? What happened after World War II? What nation on earth had we funded, fed, and armed so that they could become our enemy for the next 50 years? And you want to do this? Oh, yeah. Peace. Victory. This is victory, brethren. And this is peace. Notice what he said in verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. And that peace there is not the peace of justification. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is not this peace. Romans 14.17 says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness Peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, it's not that peace. That's relational peace. The other is justifying peace. This is personal composure and calmness of mind that they were going to have, though everything was going to be terrible. They were going to have false brethren. They were going to have false teachers. They were going to have men beating them, railing against them, blaspheming them, and they did not have any pedigree or resume that would bring the, the, the respect of men. But they were going to have peace. I'm going to give you peace. I've overcome this world. Yes, there's going to be some tribulation, but don't worry about it. Verse 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come. That means it's right at hand. We've already studied the word now, and I'm not going to do it again right now. We've studied that word now, that it means it's an impending event. And you know... That it was, what do you want to say? One hour away? Two hours away? Three hours away? That every, that ye shall be scattered? Two or three hours? So when you see the word hour, when you see the word hour, and it's spelled H-O-U-R, and it ordinarily means 60 minutes, that's its primary definition, what do we do with it? In a case like this, when we know it's over 60 minutes, We understand it like we have all the way through this gospel, that it means an impending event. It could be an hour away. It could be a day away. It could be a week away. It's just imminent. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come. It's here that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own. Unbelievable. Ye shall be scattered. Did that happen? For those of you that read Matthew chapter 26 last night, you know what happened. They all ran away and they left the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a terrible prophecy, but he told them ahead of time so they could all recall it and trust in him. He he taught us in chapters 13, 14, and 16 that prophecies are when they happen, when they're fulfilled. You know that I told you about it in advance, and we believe on him even more. He had explained that. Look at verse 4 of this very chapter. These things have I told you. This is about persecution. John 16, 4. These things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. They had followed Jesus faithfully for three and a half years, but now they ran away AWOL, absent without leave. They left him. They deserted him. Matthew and Mark, if you read last evening in Matthew, used the prophecy of Zechariah that the sword would come against the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. Matthew and Mark tell us about that. John doesn't. Luke and John tell us less about the scattering than do the other two gospel writers. This is why we read all four gospels. It happened exactly as Jesus had prophesied. They deserted him and were scattered. Terrible. Look at those words. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. After all the love that he had shown them, 
And didn't it say he loved them unto the end in chapter 13 and verse 1? He loved them to the end, but they couldn't last till the end. We're going to see members come and go, for they spring up with joy and fall away just as fast. Just like the parable of the sower tells us, they will embrace the warm affection of this church and all the life help they get. You know, those apostles sure enjoyed sitting, eating at the Last Supper with the Lord. They didn't have to prepare it. It was prepared for them. They ate that multi-course meal. Remember when we were in John 13, there was more than one course to it. Oh, they love to eat. They love mirth feasts. Attendance at mirth feasts is always better than prayer meetings. Do you know why? Because most people love to feed their bellies, but they don't like to pray. There's a difference in grades of discipleship. And here these disciples went AWOL. We're going to see members come and go. They're going to come and join us. But when the honeymoon is over and we stop bringing breakfast and bread in bed for them, they leave. The funniest thing is that most who leave for their own life do not really have a life. And we know the rules of our Lord that he's going to mess up what little life they think they have. Because he that saveth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's the rule of scripture. And shall leave me alone. Look at that 32nd verse in the middle of it. You're all going to run away and you're going to leave me alone. The apostles dined at the Passover supper and its multiple courses. While there was safety, free food, and Jesus did the preaching, so they didn't have to get up and do anything, they drank and ate. But when they had to man up and face an enemy, they ran to the four winds of heaven. When the going got tough, these fair-weather friends deserted him to get going. They would not do so again after Pentecost, for they had the powerful comforter. And I, you know, when you read the whole testimony of this event and how it was prophesied and how Jesus could have given, they could have given them some strength beforehand. He went to the cross alone. He went to the cross alone for us and he arranged for it to happen that way. And it did happen that way. We've had the same comforter from the day of baptism, so we have no excuses. Let every one of you pay attention and never leave the Lord Jesus Christ in heart, word, or deed. What in the world? What do you leave him for? He has never left. I will never leave thee. What do you want to teach me about that verse? Why do you leave him? Amen. Lord, save us from being a wall from you. Jesus' parable of the sower warned that the weak would bring forth no fruit to perfection. Some will get turned away by the love of this world. Some will get turned away by a little persecution. Oh, your neighbors, your parents, your children, somebody doesn't like where you go to church? So what? What do they know about anything? Lord, help us. Solomon laid down the rule of men. If you faint under heat, you're weak. Period. If you faint under a little bit of heat, and the little bit of heat was there was going to be a mob that was coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you quit for hours, days, weeks, or months with no persecution whatsoever. Kind of amazing. None of you were persecuted. Not like the apostles. Listen, do I, do I get cast down? Do I get destroyed? Destruction better last for about five minutes. If you ever get to that point, we can be cast down, but we can't be destroyed. Right. We can't quit. We can't run away. We can't leave them alone. We can't stop doing what we're supposed to doing. You allow your own feelings with the devil's assistance to overwhelm your soul. Real Christian men quit themselves like men. Right. Is that what it says? Yes. Quit yourselves like men. Be a man. Man up. Stand fast. Hold fast. Be vigilant. Quit you like men. That's what the Word of God says to us. Jesus is worshipped in His churches, so every neglect of His temple is deserting Him. Let's not read this and just let it be historical information to us. 
let's read this and let the historical lesson convict us that we don't want to be like that. Now, we're on the other side of Pentecost. On the other side of Pentecost, these men were great. These men burned themselves out and then died for it. How many times was Paul beaten? If we put a scourge in there and we put rods in there, what was it, about eight times that he was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, in perils of, of angry beasts out in the middle of nowhere, perils of false brethren, How happy was he? How happy was he? Is anybody in here as happy as Paul? I think, I trow not in Jesus' words. Because Paul knew the Lord Jesus Christ, and he really wanted to just get out of here. He was wishing some of those stonings had worked. Because to depart and be with Christ was far better. Lord, help us to be like that. Let's never leave the Lord alone. Doesn't this verse bother you? He told them. Three hours later, they do it to him. I'm telling you right now, what will happen to us today, tomorrow, the next day? You're not going to be persecuted. Nothing's going to happen to you like this. You have the power of the Holy Spirit that they didn't have. We have a band of brothers. Let's not be AWOL. And yet I'm not alone. He said, you guys are going to leave me alone but I'm not really alone because the Father is with me. Here is the glorious faith of our Lord Jesus on display for us to grow up and persevere ourselves. Consider how lonely it was from Gethsemane when he was arrested until he gave up his life. Everyone deserted him. All friends deserted him, though he had not wronged them and only blessed them. Even his father deserted him. Even his father deserted him for a short while while on a cross that added to his grief. I mean, he screamed out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He forsook him in fellowship. He did not rip all the faith out of Jesus. Jesus was still full of faith, but he knew that that personal, close, intimate, tight relationship that he had with the Father was separated. God turned his back on him, shut the sun off. But he still had faith. Because look at what he, My God, my God. He didn't say, I wouldn't say it from a pulpit. He didn't curse. He didn't swear. And he didn't just say God. He said, my God, my God. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm -hmm. Notice, he did not lose confidence or trust or faith in God. He still prayed to his father. Father, forgive them. And then, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. That is fantastic faith. I'm telling you now, before you're in your bed, and the curtain of death is at your chin, you're never alone. And Jesus already went through that curtain for us. And Jesus is with the Father. And Jesus is reaching through that curtain to take your hand and he'll never lose a single one. The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ is magnificent. Glorious faith. His faith didn't waver. He stepped through the curtain of death to his father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He laid down his life. I don't want to live any longer. Father, I come to thee. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There's only one way to prepare, and it's not when you're under the influence of morphine. It's right now. This is how we prepare. We remember a statement like this. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. I'm going to be forsaken and left alone, and yet I am not alone. Because the Father is with me. Fantastic. Faith is the spirit given, Bible produced awareness that God and truth never change. Spirit given, Bible produced. Am I right to say it that way? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You have in front of you an example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you follow that example? Can we go out of this world the same way? You might feel lonely. What if you've been in your deathbed for a few days? 
What if the curtain's at your chin? But we're all tired because we've been on death watch with you for three days and you just decide to hang around. Oh, okay, the curtain's here and, you know, we're tired. We haven't eaten. We haven't had a break. So we leave the room. And you hear us playing Scrabble in the next room. Everybody's laughing at me. I'm telling you the truth. Do you know how lonely you're going to feel? Oh, I hope it doesn't happen that way. The Father's with us. The Son's with us. And the Spirit's with us. And the room is full of angels. And they have a chariot that is going to deliver us out. And we've, just all, we've got to get ready now that those around us don't really care. Just, just, I hope you can embrace that. That those around us don't really care like he cares. He, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. They're going to one way or another. But he won't. That room is going to be so full that for any of them to come back in, they're going to have to make room on it. And that's what you've got to believe. Just like this verse says, the Father is with me, I am not alone. When you childishly and foolishly think feelings prove anything, you destroy faith. Faith is not feelings. Feelings is not faith. Stop feeling. Stop thinking. Believe. Believe. Rejoice. Dance. Go do something for a brother. There we are. Back to it again. It's that simple. Stop feeling. Your feelings are not the presence of the Holy Spirit. Your feelings are not whether God is with you or not. Your feelings are not whether the Bible is still true or not. Your feelings are just your sinful old man trying to get a hold of you to tear you away from Christ. So bunch them. And drive that M1 Abrams over him yourself. Never put confidence in anything in your head, your heart, your circumstances, or in others. Put it in the Lord. Everyone will let you down, and they should for two reasons. Because they're sinners, and you're not worth it. Everyone's going to let you down. Except the Lord. He'll never let you down. You know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that I don't like this 32nd verse. What they did to him. But I love the second half of the verse. That yet I am not alone. Because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you. What were these things? It's going to be a mess. It's going to be ugly, men. Men, it's going to be ugly. He tells us these things in verse 1. These things have I spoken. What things? The last 10 verses of chapter 15 about persecution. Verse 3, these things will they do unto you. That's the these things. It's trouble. I am not telling you, men, that life is going to be a bowl of cherries. Do you know how different this is from Joel? Joel says life's a bowl of cherries for everyone. Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. And I have tried to share that with you right now. You lay hold of him and rejoice in him. He's always with you. I will not leave you comfortless. While they're not comforting you and playing Scrabble in the next room, and you can hear the laughter, and you know that you can barely get your next breath, and that water is coming up in your lungs, and the curtain of death is now at your lips. He's with you. I will not leave you comfortless. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Believe that. That room is so full, and you're full. He's inside you, outside you, around you. He's going to carry you into heaven by creatures that are greater in power and glory than anyone you've ever met on earth. But they're your servants, and they're going to deliver you into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. I mean, what, what do you like from chapters 13 through 16 that he spoke that gives you peace? I can't review it. Have you, have you heard anything over the last couple of years that I've preached through John 13 through 16? Have you heard anything? And how, how far do you have to back up to hear something? I mean, if, if you just back up to verse 32... You hear something. Right. Oh, 
So even when I'm left alone by the best of men that the world's ever seen, when I'm David, when I'm David and my mighty men all want to stone me at Ziklag, when I'm Jesus Christ, the son of David, and my mighty men have all forsaken me and left me alone in the hands of that mob with that slobbering Judas Iscariot, I'm not alone. The Father is with me. I'm going to let you guys all run away and it's okay. I'll see you later. Meet me in Galilee. I'll take care of you there. Fish sandwiches, anyone? Is that the truth? Yes. Amen. Meet me in Galilee. Did he pound them for it? No. He just appeared in the room and did this. Oh. He didn't have to do He's doing that to us right now. He's worthy. He's won the victory. He closes out his, all of his lessons by saying, I have overcome the world, so be of good cheer. Let's rejoice and be glad today. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. These chapters that I've written down for you, Church of Greenville, are for you to have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Our tribulation is nothing compared to theirs. We do have tribulation, but it's small. It's light. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He's overcome any angle of it that you want to think about. Rejoice and be glad in him today. Right. Build, build that joy. Increase that joy. Feed that joy. Be with other joyful brethren. Don't hang around with the sad sacks. Uh, work yourself up if you've got to be with them for five minutes sometime, and then go back and be with a joyful person that doesn't think, that doesn't feel, that believes, right. and that likes to talk about what they believe and get excited about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's won the victory. We can go like this wherever we meet each other. You know, the, the world is, they will certainly not understand. But if you see each other on the street, do this to each other. Yes, it's victory. I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. The apostles were crazy. Be of good cheer. Did you read? There was a storm in Acts 27 and 28 that lasted for two weeks. They didn't see the sun for two weeks. You know what happened to me in two hours when I was in a storm? There's a couple sailors in here that hey, don't, don't laugh at me too much or I'll reverse those tables. Um, that storm affected all of us, but it affected us in a few hours. Two weeks? Here's what Luke wrote. I love it. All hope was gone. Yes! <laughs> Luke was hopeless. Paul pops up and says twice, be of good cheer. Right. I've met with the Lord tonight. We're going to have a shipwreck. <laughs> We're going to be cast on a certain island. You're going to have to swim for your lives. But not a hair of your head's going to be harmed. Amen. Be of good cheer. Break out the little bit of food we have left, and let's have a snack before this ship breaks up. That is, that is Acts 27 and 28. And it really is. I love all of you, brethren. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry that I don't know how to preach these chapters the way they should be preached, but I hope that something by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God without me will bless you to grow in faith and joy and hope and peace in the Holy Ghost because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and what he's taught us. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.